This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton. I've heard of that guy once or twice. Yeah. So uh, we sit down with Trev. This is uh, a bit of a episode 33 went sideways audio wise. This has been step three of three trying to get a taxidermy one through. It sounds like the audio was pretty good on this one. So we're, we're going to put this back in place of 33, which didn't come out so nice audio wise. And then we're using this as episode 47 as well. So Trevor Crothers, Rockmaster taxidermy. Um, yeah, it's good. Um, it's, but some of you may have heard this in already in 33, but we got the better audio quality on this one. So we've redone it. Um, hopefully you can get a little bit more out of it than that, that first one that we did. So. Oh, I did a quick check already and the audio seems much, much better on uh, the recording side. So yeah. And again, every time we chat, I always learn something. And as we discuss, uh, I, I even took a 710 mil bottle of salt into the mountains this year and got that satisfaction of pouring it out. But yeah, he gets into that and why it's important to bring so much salt and how to work with the salt. And yeah, it, it was pretty cool listening to uh, how he gets in there and how he starts the initial cuts on the face is something I've, I've never seen done. It's always, you start at the back and you flip over and then you peel from the inside, but yeah, he approaches it completely different. And I, uh, that's an exciting part of this uh, cast, I think. So with you, you went in, you did a fly-in, and you had a sheep tag, you had a boo tag, you had a moose tag, and you guys were successful on moose. Um, were there any thoughts about possibly doing, uh, were you guys going to mount the moose, or did Greg consider that? Or No, it, w- it wasn't a consideration at that point. It was. Uh, it turned quickly turned into a meat hunt, and uh, the all of us have have uh have moose mounts and taken moose before so yeah we just uh we we took the antlers out in the incisor tooth to to be legal and yeah there's there was no consideration on my end or the other guy's end for uh for taking a cape out of a moose however we we did bring in preparation we had like five ten pounds of salt at the lake as well to uh hopefully get a sheep or a goat or a boo down so but yeah next time Cool. So you guys had considered maybe a caribou. You may have, um, that may have been something you mounted if you'd shot a big bull or something like that. Oh, absolutely. I was 100% going to, going to, uh, get a mount done of any caribou that I'd taken. Yeah. You know, I did mine. I was, well, same area as you, uh, back in 15. And I, I just, that's one of my prettiest mounts. Like mm-hmm. the sheep are special, obviously, cause they're sheep and, 
but uh, yeah, just that caribou is stunning. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. And it's a, it's a nice bull, but yeah, I'm so glad that I got it mounted. So. Oh, totally. It's uh, when I first started hunting the, the one and two animal that I wanted for, for, for bucket list was caribou and mountain goat. And I've uh, now had a chance to hunt both not successful, but uh, we, we booked for 2023 yesterday. So we know that there's both in, in this area as well. So I'll start counting nice. salt right now. Yeah. Um, cool. So this is episode 47, just a, a bit of a plug here on Trevor. He's uh, been a big part of the society. He's done it. He donates a ton of stuff every year. Everyone that comes to him, that's not a wild sheep member. He buys him a membership um, as a customer uh, donates every year to the society. He won the uh, president's award in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. was the recipient of that. And uh, just does a ton somebody, of work. He, somebody else won it with him though. Didn't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but he, was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he uh, he also is uh, he, an organizer of the Jurassic Classic. He's the lead on that for the Wild Sheep Society of BC. So does a ton of work, heavy lifting in the conservation community. Um, but above and beyond that, also the uh, just the, the ton of work he does in, in donations and that sort of stuff. So just mm-hmm. a great guy and then very knowledgeable when it comes to the taxidermy side of things as well. I've seen his work. I actually haven't had the pleasure of killing anything recently. So I uh, haven't sent anything over to him work-wise, but Trev does a fantastic job on the taxidermy end of things. And obviously a really interesting listen today about the work that he does and and how for you to pr- prepare for your hunt, what you need to bring, how to, pr- you know, once you got an animal down, how to deal with it and, and all the nuts and bolts around that. So. Totally. Like I said, uh, always learn something chatting with him. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Mr. Carruthers, Rockmaster, how's it going, man? Great, man. Great. Great to be here. So you two are just off the mountains, fresh out of BC. I've been home now for six weeks, and you guys are just just out of the bush. So uh, both you guys had a great hunt. Steve got a couple of moose on the ground. Trev, uh, tell us what happened for you the on your stone sheep hunt in northern BC. Yeah, we went to uh, we went to plan. C, I think it was by the time we uh, got around to it. Um, ended up hiking in. Uh, we'd been planning on flying and ended up hiking in. And uh, positive, flexible attitude is something uh, I've always heard on any hunt plan. So uh, just stayed positive. Figured we'd uh, go explore some country that we didn't really know much about. And uh, had my had my buddy Darren there uh, from Alberta. Uh, he had a goat tag in the same area and so yeah, we hiked in, uh, September 13th and yeah, I managed to get lucky on, uh, on day five, uh, killed a nice nine-year-old ram, uh, up in the, uh, Skeena region in region six of, uh, Northwest BC. It was, uh, yeah, pretty amazing. Far exceeded my expectations of what was probably going to happen on a plan C hunt, but, uh, yeah, it was great really really good hunt uh sharing it with a good buddy and uh yeah we had some highs and some lows like any sheep hunt and 
yeah, it was it just worked out really good. That's awesome, man. So this is your second second stone sheep. Um, and uh, what was the hunt like? You see lots of. What, was there much pressure? Was there many guys back there? Was there many? You see a lot of rams. What was it like? Uh, no, didn't see a single person, which is nice. Uh, going, you know, that second week of September, uh, we followed some horse prints in from the outfitter and uh, followed some footprints in that were walking out so we could tell that there was at least somebody that had been in there uh, on foot backpacking within the last probably week or 10 days. Um, we, we hiked probably uh, 15, 18 kilometers in over a stretch of two days. We got to one spot. It was a low hanging valley and then pushed the final uh, bit into some aldery stuff uh, on day three. Um, but didn't see any other people. Uh, didn't see a lot of critters, uh, which was actually a little surprising. The valley we were in was a real big valley. Looked like it should hold a lot of uh, goats and and sheep uh, in some of the spots. And I think total we saw six rams uh, and five ewes and lambs. Uh, a couple, a nanny and a kid just above camp and a wolverine and a wolf and that was uh all the critters we saw i guess we saw a couple of goats on the hike in long ways away and some down by the highway and whatnot um but that was all we saw for uh for critters in a total of seven days you know when you consider hiking days and whatnot but nice not seeing a single person back there uh as well and just kind of having having the area to ourselves yeah, absolutely. Hey, that's just, uh, and that goes to show you, you get off the opener, you know, there's a lot more opportunity and, um, you know, the, the Rams are a little more skittish, I think, um, mind you, August 1st, they're pretty skittish, I guess, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I've I, personally, I've always had much more success on those early hunts, but, uh, I love hearing these stories, these late season hunts. Um, so now, you know, your, your Rams six weeks, uh, has six weeks to thicken the hide up and stuff. What was the hair like? Was he pretty thick or was he still pretty thin? What did, what was his hide like? No, he's amazing. Uh, really nice long hair. Um, really dark, dark cape. Uh, Darren on the walk in said, uh, you know, like what kind of stone do you, or it was a walker, the drive. He said, what kind of stone sheep do you really like? And I never really thought of it. I, I, I can't say if I like dark sheep or light sheep or, mixed sheep or anything um this ram is really close colorations to my first ram uh side by side they're actually really similar i think every stone sheep looks pretty stinking cool and uh so this one has a has a real cool mix of real dark shoulders um you know really cool contrasting lines on his uh on his legs the white and the, the white and the black and then a nice uh, gray space with a bit of a line across it uh, they, they just all look so cool, but you look at the differences between a September 17th Cape and an August 1st Cape and, uh, oh, a guy like me, I just, I love that more than anything else. It's just, uh, how much longer that hair is. Uh, they look, they just look amazing. Um, yeah, they, I've never hunted the opener in BC yet. Uh, all the stone sheep hunts I've done have all been, uh, in September, I guess I killed my first ram off. August 21st. So that was the first uh, time or that was the earliest I've been. But uh, other than that, I've hunted September and October for, for stones in BC, mainly just due to work schedule and uh, getting away and mixing family vacation and whatnot in. And uh, 
you know, short of some snowstorms and whatnot, uh, I, I love getting that the way that time of year where you don't have the crowds and uh, some of the pressures of opening day and, and whatnot. And, and the, the sheep are just not really beautiful that time of year. Yeah, right on, man. That's uh, that's fantastic. So now I've seen pictures of your ram, beautiful, mature ram. Uh, but uh, looking at them, and, and, and this is topical this time of year or this year with all these um, – immature rams that have been shot underage or you know not full curl so looking at your ram i think it wasn't full curl but certainly a a mature old ram um do you want to talk about that experience for you and shooting a a ram on age and especially you know you and i have talked about this a lot about all this issue in bc with these uh you know these young rams that are being shot and and these issues um you know what was going through your head when you pulled the trigger and and uh you know, tell me about the experience. You just said something before we got online here about aging them for six hours or whatever that number was. Um, yeah. Just showed the level of dedication there. So, yeah, I think we probably watched them for a total of five, five and a half hours, maybe. Um, you know, and that whole time wasn't spent uh, actually aging. Uh, when we first spotted them, we spotted them, Darren spotted them from camp um, in a spot that we'd walked by the day before. And I said, man, that spot holds sheep. It just has tracks all over it, minerals, and, uh, and it just seemed like a spot that they'd, they'd show up. I actually made a comment earlier in the morning that we'd probably see sheep within 300 yards of where we walked yesterday and the day before. Uh, and so Darren spotted them right where we thought they'd be and uh, had no no inclination that they were there. Um, and the wind was horrible. It was blowing right to them from camp. And uh, I took kind of a slow approach and just said, well, let's see if we can get a little bit better angle without screwing them up with the wind. And uh, Got to a spot we were probably 750 or 800 yards away, and I put the scope on him. And I remember in the first couple minutes, I said, "Like he looks like he's got quite a few uh, annuli uh, up top, um, but at 700, 800 yards, you know, it becomes uh, a game of just kind of watching him as many times as possible." Could tell he wasn't full curl from that distance; that he was probably shy of it uh, by you know a bit. Um, and we kind of, I had the idea at that point that uh, I knew uh, the wind was really bad. And if, if we had to sit there all day and come back the next day, we would have. Uh, so we probably sat there for four hours, three and a half up on a little ridge and took some video, took some pictures. Um, I started forming the idea that that ram was probably eight. Um I know that area, and that's probably important to touch on hunting the or knowing the genetics of the area or the type of rams that it can produce. I know it produces uh, a ram that usually isn't as big as maybe some of the Region 7 rams uh, and is fast growing. And that's evident when you look at the difference between my, my first ram, which I shot on the, on the seventh side. But uh, they, they dipped into a little bit of a, a valley and uh, I thought, boy, we might get a chance here to get closer and look at them without screwing this wind up. So we, uh, snuck up this little drainage and it actually worked out almost too perfect. I didn't think it was going to work out as well as it did when we first started. Uh, but we ended up 275 yards away from them. Um, put the scope on him at 275 yards and we had him and another Ram. And, uh, that's when, you know, that last probably hour, uh, hour and a bit is when I spent, uh, really putting age to him. Uh, he was with a ram next to him that was six years old. 
Uh, we looked at both of them. I took a lot of pictures. I have a uh, Times Up adapter for my uh, for my Olympus camera, so I took a lot of pictures and video. He kept turning away from me, and it was a bit of a snowstorm for a while, so that probably added a little bit to him. Uh, and Darren and I would sit there, and I would go through my pictures and tell him what I had him at. And I had him at nine, uh, eight, eight, probably nine. Uh, for the longest time, I couldn't really tell whether he had that ninth uh, annuli. You could see he had lamb tip, uh, which is, is something that a lot of guys uh, either miss or have broomed, which can cause some issues and whatnot. But uh, I was confident he was eight, didn't want to shoot him based on being eight. Um, at one point, it looked like they were going to go. And uh, the one younger ram got up and looked a little skittish. I knew he's looking right towards us and, and started walking. I think Darren said something like, they're going to they're gonna bust here in a minute. And just no real uh, uh, need to get on the gun. I said, well, if it happens, it happens. And finally, he actually turned around, bedded, facing towards us. Uh, and that's when I got a really good look at the front of his horns. Um, and at that point, I was confident he was nine. He had a real good ridge in the front, uh, and I had a solid eight after conferring with Darren back and forth. And I remember actually chuckling about it, saying, like, boy, this is an interesting feeling this year with all the media attention and social media attention and, and uh, podcasts about aging rams and whatnot. And, um, but uh, I was extremely confident at one point and uh, just looked towards Darren and said, uh, I'm going to shoot this ram. And, I kind of made the decision at the point that I was uh, 100% confident. And, uh, yeah, he was exactly what I thought he was. Um, talk about that long hair. I mean, some of that long hair was very close to that last annuli, which made that uh, tough. Uh, he probably I don't know what he has for distance between the base and, and that first ring, um, but not a, not a ton. So it made it difficult until he turned towards me. So just a lot of different angles. Um, conversation with the buddy pictures you know knowing horn segments uh and seeing uh what i knew were eight solid lines he had a couple false lines to sort out and seeing them from both sides made a big difference um but yeah it's a it's a process uh no doubt and it's uh it's a game of well less than inches uh, you know it's a it's a game of just being real real sure before you pull the trigger it was an interesting feeling this year with, uh, with all the conversation that's going on right now in the sheep hunting community in BC. And I, I've been there before too, and it, it's a long walk, that 175 yard walk or whatever it was to, to go and look at your ram until you get your hands on them and you count them about seven times, you go, and then you start to, to deescalate and sort of, you can actually enjoy it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, and this one was, it was very rewarding because I walked up, I counted him once and it was a very solid, like I turned to Darren and, and was like, he's exactly what I thought he was. He's nine years old and, uh, and not a hesitation about it. And, you know, CI went great and no hesitation there. It's uh, he's a very obvious nine year old, uh, which obviously makes it a little easier. Very good rings. We had the right weather for it other than a bit of snow that kept us, you know, uh, from having a solid idea. But once it cleared a bit, yeah, it was, it was confidence. It still feels weird walking up to a ram to, to verify, but, uh, I was very confident what he was. Yeah. Awesome, man. And that just goes to show you, you know, you, you know, you're an experienced guy. You've been hunting sheep for a long time now. Um, and, uh, you know, just, you know, and it was a pretty obvious nine, like you said, 
and still the time and effort you put into them um, just goes to show you, you can't take anything for granted. And, and uh, you know, you put your effort in and you were rewarded for it. So uh, hats off to you, man. And what a, just a stunning Ram. It just, I just love the look of it. And um, yeah, really, really pumped for you, buddy. You deserve it. Thanks. Yeah. It was pretty, a pretty awesome experience. Very cool. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so, Hey, I guess uh, let's segue now and talk about some taxidermy. We've, we've done this, Steve and I have done it three times now. You've done it twice. So we we, we did a, a, a podcast with Craig Stoley. Uh, didn't work out because of our end, the tech issue. And then we did it on yours, uh, did it, did one with you. on, uh, And that one was uh, suboptimal, the uh, quality of the uh, product. But we pushed it out there. Uh, regrettably, I guess, a little bit. Having said that, I know there's been a number of people that have got some really good information off that podcast, and I know they've reached out to you. And uh, was it Mike in in uh, Chilliwack that we were talking to? Uh, yeah. You know, he he definitely got a really some really good information off that podcast. But audio quality was poor. Um, so here we are. We're going to round three. Um, I think we sound good. I'm hoping that this will be a, a better podcast for our listeners. So we're going to hit the taxidermy angle. Um, yeah. Talk lots about your work um, as uh, with the Rackmaster Taxidermy Studios. Uh, talk about um, you know just planning for your hunt, uh, the hunt itself. Basically, it's going to be the same style of podcast we did earlier. Well, actually, what we'll do is we'll replace that podcast that we did. I think it was 32 or something. You said Steve somewhere in there um 33 um so we're just gonna dub this one in 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 place of it but also uh have it as a new podcast obviously there's new content here and some of the stuff we'll have covered before if anyone that listened to the poor quality and got through it hats off to you uh, but uh, anyway we appreciate you taking the time again here trev so um let's let's kind of go through the basics and go back to the planning stages so you're planning a Let's use the stove like, because we're sheep hunters. Well, let's use sheep hunting as an example. Maybe you even want to use your hunt as an example um, of of the process you go through. So let's go back to you know planning your hunt and what that looks like from a taxidermy perspective. Yeah, you bet. I think uh, what I highlighted last time too is it's really important to plan for success and be prepared for success. Doesn't happen all the time, but uh, the more you plan for success, the more you're ready to deal with it uh, when it comes. And it sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but you know, you want to be sure that, you know, uh, you can handle everything after the kill. So no different than uh, handling meat and having game bags, uh, and a system to get the meat out and packing and time with weather, et cetera. It's, uh, it's planning for success with, uh, as well. And obviously more important, for some people than others. Um, but, uh, and especially for me and, and my business, uh, I try to promote, you know, being prepared and knowing exactly what it takes to, uh, to be successful or to help, help, uh, take care of everything when you're successful. So yeah, for, for us, uh, ours was a pretty standard type of hunt, two guys backpacking in, not really much different if we would have got dropped off on a lake somewhere. Uh, we hiked probably the same distance that some people would, would hike on a float plane type hunt anyways. Um, we started by a having a plan back at the truck. Uh, and so that's having enough salt, uh, to deal with uh, things when you get back. And then, uh, also having enough salt uh, per person to deal with, uh, you know, one or two animals when, uh, when we're hunting. 
Um, and the system that I use is, works pretty well for one or two animals. If you were by yourself or if you were with more guys, it works uh, well. What I do is uh, uh, I, I reference a 710 milliliter bottle. Uh, last time, uh, bringing 710 milliliters of salt in your pack. That's about the minimum that a guy can get away with. Uh, if you want to properly spread it out and have a cape that's long enough uh, to have some options like pedestal mounts or wall pedestals and, and whatnot. And uh, I'm going to stress that 710 milliliters does not go a long ways if you don't do a very good job in your uh, your prep work, like your fleshing and whatnot. So that's that's what, essentially what we did was we brought in the uh, two 710 milliliter bottles each of salt. Um, and had had a five gallon pail or whatever it was a small Home Depot pail of uh, salt back at the truck, and that's uh, that's essentially how we prepared going in. Um, also having a game bag for for a cape, and uh, you know, no different than having game bags for for meat. We had a separate bag that I knew was my cape bag as well. Right on. So you guys did go in with the intent that, yeah, we might be packing two animals back to the truck. So the, I think you said 18 K hike in or something. That's uh that's a pretty daunting task carrying, I guess your two trips really like you're, you're probably not going to carry everything out on in one with two animals. Yeah. We, we went in with the idea that maybe we have success early uh, and we would leave camp there and hike out um, with, with one critter back to the truck and then hike back in kind of empty. Uh, of course, when you kill on day five, that turns into day seven by the time you hike out and whatnot and uh, very quickly can chew up nine or 10 days uh, on a plan. But, uh, you know, it still, still had the idea that maybe we get lucky on day one or day two with either a goat or a sheep and uh, could turn around and, and do both. It would have been a momentous task, but uh nice to be flexible anyways and give yourself the option versus uh paint yourself into a corner yeah and like you said plan for success right plan for yeah. two two animals down and yeah cool yeah. so so somebody planning a trip that you know we talk about the salt um what are you running for what are you running for a cape what are you going to put that in um and then like, in terms of bringing what you're bringing with you and also caping tools so what do you got you got your what kind of knives what sort of thing are you bringing yeah. along for that uh, so this year, uh, I carried, uh, just a Benchmade folder bug out as my, uh, main camp knife, uh, main, main knife that I use for everything. Um, also used it for breaking the entire animal down. Uh, and then I had a Havilon with me. Uh, a lot of times I won't bring a Havilon. I have a small caping knife that I kind of prefer, prefer for, uh, that I can sharpen as well, but, uh, the weight savings just wasn't there uh so i brought my my havilon and, and a number of blades um which so havilon i used the next day was a bunch of 22 blades uh which is my preference for for work uh for some of the small caping work but up on the mountain that day all i used was the benchmade uh bug out um, and that's all i ran for, for knives through the hunt is just the two the combination the one knife that can handle kind of everything uh, around camp and on an animal and then and then have a lot for for caping or fleshing and whatnot and the you use the Havilon to flesh then you don't use your camp knife you yeah use i used uh, i use the Havilon for a face uh area and then i use the benchmade for a lot of uh the 
the rest of the cape for bigger fleshing. Um, and it's just a feel thing. I like a longer, a bit of a longer blade for some of that meat and fat and whatnot around the, uh, brisket and, uh, up in the high shoulders and whatnot. Um, so a combination of the two, some of that fine work, like I said, I really prefer, I have a little, uh, actually have a little bighorn handled, uh, caping knife with just a little blade on it. But, uh, by the time, by the time I added up the weight of that and the sharpening system and whatnot, it just, uh, I left it back in the truck and didn't end up using it this trip. So I used to have along with, uh, probably five or six blades, maybe, uh, which I sharpen as well as I, as I go. Okay, cool. So using your trip as an example, you kill this ram. Uh, I'm guessing it's late, day, late, later in the day, you watch the ram for four or five hours, whatever the case may be there. So um, you knock them down late at night. Um, what time do you get back to camp? And then how do you manage the head? Obviously, the head's still on, um, the hide's still on the head and that sort of stuff, um, yeah. getting back to camp. But did you get them off right away? Did you wait till the next day? What did that look like for you, Trev? Uh, I waited till the next day. Usually I'd be the guy who'd, uh, do it that night. A lot of times in camp, I'm the guy who stays up and says, ah, oh, let's get it off. Cause it's going to give me a better product. Uh, earlier season, uh, I would have, I would have caped him that night, but we got back to camp at about 11 or 1130, uh, crammed some food in us. And, uh, it was a very cold night and it snowed that morning. Um, and so I laid the cape out, uh, while we were breaking down meat, I was confident that the entire body was cold and uh, the face hadn't been rolled up or anything like that. So I left it uh, just underneath the game bag right beside the tent. Uh, and it was cold in the morning. It was, it was actually really nice and cold in the morning. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, you have to consider when I talk about treating uh, or, or thinking about things in the same way as meat is it comes down to warmth and moisture and bacteria growth. And that's really what, uh, the entire process is, is aiming to clean up is, is protecting against warmth. So not letting any warmth, uh, stay in the hide and moisture is what promotes bacteria. And that's what salt is used for is getting all of that moisture out. So that way bacteria can't grow no different than if you, uh, you know, you break down a critter and it's a hot day and you put all that game meat in a, in a garbage bag and, and keep it all bundled up and it, you don't let it air out and cool down. That meat will start turning. It's the same bacteria. Uh, so, so you're just treating that cape the same way. I was confident that the, the, uh, quarters were really good. Uh, we put them down by the creek where there's really good cold, cold air. I think it frosted that night. Uh, and just as confident with that face in that condition. Again, I didn't roll it up or, or, uh, I made sure I let that air get to it and really uh, cool it off overnight. Usually I'd stay overnight and, or stay up and just do it because it probably takes, uh, you know, half hour, 45 minutes to, to get it off the face. Uh, but, uh, I was confident leaving it. So yeah, got in, ate some supper and, uh, and then yes, the next day, uh, day six was our meat processing, caping, fleshing day and, uh, getting everything ready to hike out the following day. Cool. So you're back at camp now. Um, you, you've got the animal there. Um, so um, I guess let's actually, before we get there, let's talk about you, you walk up to your animal, you're going to do your field photos, that sort of stuff. Um, how are you approaching now? And uh, how, how are you getting that cape off? So maybe yeah, talk about somebody that's going to do a shoulder mount and then maybe even somebody that wants to do a full body mount. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's where it all starts is uh, obviously getting lots of pictures, you know, taking that time and then realizing that you have to break that animal down. Uh, caping takes some time as well as debone or, you know, quartering and whatnot. Um, my basics for anything is starting between the horns, uh, right behind the horns uh, and running a straight line right down the back all the way to the tail. Uh, one way or the other, whether you're doing a shoulder mount or a full body doesn't really make a difference. Uh, run that line straight down the middle while you have an animal sitting there kind of squared away and you can stone sheep are really cool because they have pretty easily identifiable marks usually on their, uh, between their shoulder blades and along along their spine and whatnot. So running that down and opening them up a bit, that's going to start getting some heat out and it's going to help you with your deboning process anyways, doing a, a, uh, you know, the gutless method, pulling back straps and whatnot and going from there. Um, so I always tell people run down uh, with the hair. So rather than running up, a lot of guys will start in the shoulder blades and work their way up. You can cut a lot of hairs, uh, especially on an earlier season cape, it'll show. So start at the top and work your way down and run that knife with the uh, hairline, and you'll you usually cut a few less hairs. Uh, big elk or something like that or big moose doesn't make much of a difference, but uh, anything with smaller, smaller, easily identifiable uh, cuts, you can start seeing that in the stitch line at the end, and uh, it's just nice to have of uh none of those cut hairs uh, also easier to work on your meat um for a shoulder mount i tell people just go to the midway of the body uh, always take a little bit more whatever you think uh your taxidermist needs take it and he can always cut it off it's not going to save you uh it's going to save you ounces if you take less but uh those ounces can't be put back when the taxidermist needs them so I tell people mid body. When I say mid body, I'm talking like in between the front leg and the back leg. Find the line about midway in there and and start cutting down on both sides around to the belly. And when I say belly, you should be getting into, you know, very very far down uh, where uh, a diaphragm would be. So that way you're not up in the underneath the armpits or in the brisket area. Um, so don't be afraid of cutting down around that belly area. Uh, tell people that for shoulder mount, just to ring around uh, the kneecap uh, and tube the knees out. Uh, obviously, life size, you're going to need to uh, make some relief cuts behind the back of the leg. So you can make relief cuts to uh, make sure that you can get that uh, hoof separated from the uh, lower ankle. Uh, relief cuts on the uh, on the back legs as well. But shoulder mount, ring around them, uh, break the knuckle off if you want. Uh, you're not going to end up taking that back for meat anyways. And and then you can pull that down into tubes around those legs. If you if you make those those cuts, you'll have lots for any type of shoulder pedestal or wall pedestal mount to do it if you want. Um, watching blood management is important when you start dealing with uh, uh, meat and and caping at the same time, so you can't be rolling an animal all over the place while those cuts are made, or you're going to get backstraps dirty. So I start by backstrapping or taking the backstraps out uh, before I start moving an animal side to side, working on each shoulder. And I'm deboning or I'm quartering while I'm caping, if that makes sense. I'm pulling a front quarter off and, and caping down, um, and then you know managing the meat at the same time as I'm as I'm managing my cape, but just watching which way the blood rolls even turning that animal around and letting it leak uh, away from the hide and not letting blood cool up in the hide is, uh, is another one. Blood is worse than water, obviously, for, for uh, bacteria growth. And, and warm blood sitting there uh, can, can really promote bacteria growth in the hide. 
So you get the cape off and you found you made a mistake and there's blood everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe and you get back to camp or maybe you put it in your pack and there's a bunch of blood on it. Um, just throw it in the creek or what, how do you take care of it? You just get a dry cloth to wipe it off. What do you use? Yeah, it can, uh, some of it can be situationally dependent. I'm a fan of throwing it in a wet creek, a cold creek and letting it flush out quick. The one thing you have to remember is that you're introducing a lot of moisture in there and you're going to have to deal with that as well. So making sure that you're going to realize that that water, you want it to drip off as soon as possible. And then that salt is not going to go as far because you're going to be dealing with that water that you had. But if you have a mess of blood, uh, I find it more important to get that blood out by quickly washing it in a cold, cold creek. Um, And then just realizing that that's something that you're introducing and then going to have to deal with. It's just a bit of blood, uh, not not as big of a deal, but uh, it's definitely a good idea. Early season two, if you know you're dealing with warm, warm temps, uh, you know, 30 above and whatnot, uh, depending when you kill that ram, it's not a horrible idea either to just to slosh it around in there quick, let it cool off. Um, just again, knowing that you're going to have to deal with that moisture and uh, and let it dry off as well uh, before you before you leave it. And uh, I, uh, this seems like common sense. Is it correct to say that if you got a white animal, you got a doll sheep or a goat, you're, you're more concerned about blood than obviously a dark stone or, yeah. or maybe a dark bighorn? Yeah, for sure. And uh, goats hold hair, hold uh, blood, you know, like crazy, just especially later season goats. They hold a lot of blood. Different types of animals hold blood differently. Uh, you know, bears don't hold it nearly as well as uh, as hollow-haired animals and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, whiter animal, and even those light stone sheep and whatnot. It's uh, it can be a lot of work for a tannery uh, getting that blood out of there. Okay, cool. So you're back at camp. You've got your animal off, um, and maybe okay, same sort of scenario. You wake up in the morning and you need to get this thing. Uh, get get its face off and get it fleshed um what yeah. process is, does that is involved there yeah so it's funny darren and i had an interesting conversation at like 11 30 or midnight whenever we're eating there it's like the you get into a as soon as you as soon as you shoot a ram or you have success on a trip you get that like get home itis right where you're i, I think camera what mike called it uh, on the other podcast there but like you just the second that you have success, you see the truck almost and go like, man, that's the goal. I could get out of here. If we started hiking right now, we can get out of here. Um, and you have to resist that a little bit and say like, okay, well, first off, we can reduce our weight by doing things properly. Second off, you know, it, there's some steps that we have to take regardless. Um, we can get back to the truck, but I still have a, uh, a sheep cape to flesh and put some salt on. I can't roll it up and let it, uh, let it sit in a bag for 20 hours of driving home. Um, and so you have to real, really, again, that's part of planning is saying like, okay, that next day is not going to be get the heck out of here. Uh, it's going to be working on, on stuff. So, so we had that conversation. It was like, you know what, we're hiking out the following day. That's, that's the way it's happening. It's going to take us a lot of time to, to hike out. And so let's give ourselves like a good day. And, and in the end, I mean, it kind of sucked. We had a really, really nice day working in camp that day. And the next day it poured rain all night long and we, we hiked out in the pouring rain. Um, but again, we'd have to deal with it anyways back at the truck and how easy things were to deal with, uh, back at the truck and back home was, uh, was well worth that, well worth that extra day. So we woke up that next morning and, uh, 
yeah, I had breakfast and I started working on my cape and Darren started working on deboning meat and it was just turned into a kind of half day process. Uh, that's where, you know, I'll walk through some of the steps of taking a cape off the face. Uh, what I like to do is start by looking at a ram straight in the face. So turning its nose towards me and pulling its lips, uh, up, up, up and down, uh, towards me. So that way I can see, uh, the gum line right along the teeth. Uh, so what I do is I, I pull that bottom lip down and I run a, run a blade as close to the teeth line, uh, or gum line as I can to take as much of that lip skin as possible, uh, around the bottom jaw. And I follow that, uh, follow that line around the bottom jaw and then do the exact same with the top. I come right in tight to the gums and take as much flesh as possible on the cape, uh, doing that. Uh, I always tell people as soon as I'm looking at that ram straight in the face, I remember that I have to take an incisor tooth. So it's just, I don't know why, but it just reminds me when I'm looking at that, that ram like that, uh, that I have to take a tooth for CI. Um, in the last couple of years, obviously that's a change. Um, but it makes it a lot easier when you're caping the other way to have those cuts pre-started, uh, by doing it that way. And I took a few pictures actually this, this, uh, year and I'll maybe we'll, we'll chat about, um, putting them somewhere, uh, just some, some Cape prep stuff of where I made my cuts and, and how things look when they are, when you do start cutting, essentially taking more than, than less is, is important, but that's, that's where I start, uh, by caping. I then flip it around and uh, and you'll have the hide uh, close to the horns somewhere uh, where you've made that cut. You can make a uh, Y incision, which is Ying to each horn from there. You can make a T incision, which is straight up and then a straight T to each one of the horns. You know, as long as you make a, a clean cut, uh, it's not a huge deal with a sheep on which way you make those cuts. It's very easy to to stitch that that T or that Y up, but you want to go right to the base of the horn at the, at the back, uh, back, you know, quarter of the horn there. Um, I start working around the horn and, uh, I took a couple of pictures again of this, but pulling down that hair, all the hair, and then you'll, you'll find the spot on a sheep horn goat horns are very similar, uh, where you can cut along the bottom where it's soft and it's right where soft meets hard of the horn. And, uh, and so you're going to cut along around the outside of that uh, of that cut, making sure that you keep pulling the hair down before you go any further. So it's a little bit of a tedious process, pulling hair down, uh, making sure that you cut a little bit, pull some more hair down. Don't just wring it and cut off a bunch of hair because that stuff uh, can make or break what things look like when you're uh, when your taxidermist is putting it all together. Um, deer is obviously a little different. Deer, elk, moose, you're coming from underneath to the burr. Um, and, but with sheep, you want to make that outside cut first, the whole way around that sheep. Um, and from there, you can start uh, peeling back that hide. So pulling back between the horns, being really careful. Some of those sheep uh, don't have a lot of gap in between the horns. So being careful with that flap in between um, and then coming down behind the skull uh, to where the earbuds are. Uh, you want to take as much ear canal as possible. So I tell people like, you know, you want to get the smallest of that ear canal should be smaller than your pinky or the size of your pinky. If you start cutting into an ear and it's, you know, the, the size of your, uh, thumb or bigger, you can cut closer to the skull to, to make sure that you take, take more of that ear canal. Uh, so you want to just see a little tiny ear canal where you cut, 
And essentially with caping off the face, if you're taking more than less, uh, you'll always be in good shape. So uh, take more along the bone. You know, that's where you really are going to dull a knife out uh, or have a long blade is because you're constantly running along bone, um, really getting as much as possible. You're not trying to, uh, you know, it's not the same as when you're taking it off the animal or you're trying to leave as much meat on the, on the uh, quarters. You're trying to take as much off uh, that skull as possible and, and then you won't make any bad cuts. Um, from there, you get down to the eyes, the back of the eye socket. And again, it's running the knife right along that eye and pulling out uh, pulling that hide out and almost running uh, the knife right along the uh, eye, making sure you take as much eyelid as possible. And what you'll see is that eyelid sticks to the eye. And as you pull it out, you're, you can cut that eyelid away from the eyeball. Um, again, just one of those spots that uh, people don't take enough and don't run that knife right along the eye uh, as much. Sheep have a pretty identifiable, identifiable uh, preorbital gland just like deer. And, uh, and once you get past that eye, if you don't dig that knife straight down and straight towards the skull, you're going to miss it. And you're going to cut a big, uh, circle right where your, uh, right where your preorbital gland is no different than, a, than deer and elk and whatnot. So you want to, as soon as you get to the corner of that eye socket, you want to turn that knife straight towards that sheep's skull and start cutting straight in and down. And, uh, you'll notice that it creates a bit of a where that uh, preorbital gland is um, on the bottom, you know, you're, you're, you're just pulling around and making uh, the bottom of the jaw. You're following that, that uh, stuff around the trachea and whatnot. Um, and then from there, once those are the most important cuts you've made, you've made the nose cut underneath um, along the gum line. You've made a real good gum line cut. You've uh, taken the eyelids and as much ear as possible. You've cut around the horns. Nice. And there's just a matter of pulling and, and skinning that across the face till you meet your cuts where you've made before. Uh, one spot that some people miss is, is the top of the nose. Um, when you're following that knife along the top of the uh, nose coming down, you'll hit a point where it gets soft. And the point where it turns from hard to soft is where you want to drive that knife down towards that nasal cavity. And you want to cut straight down and then straight out and follow that bone the whole way. So uh, take as much nose as possible by doing that. And, uh, and then you can pull that'll, that'll uh, separate where you've made your pre your cuts uh, previously. And, uh, and then you can pull it off the face. Wow. There's a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it makes, you make it seem uh, pretty easy. Okay. So you've got the face off. Um, now, uh, obviously fleshing it. So that's, you know, just removing the fat and the meat, um, not just, but uh, uh, obviously at some point we're going to salt it, but probably before that, we're going to turn the ears and the lips. So do you want to jump into that a little bit and talk about that? Yeah, you bet. And a lot of, quite a few, uh, the way I kind of breeze over a few things is a lot of people are pretty good at taking the hide off of the face and that part doesn't scare them as much. Uh, so long as you know to cut more, uh, off than necessary or cut as much off as necessary that that gives you a good start what scares people is where you start splitting um and and especially if you've never tried it so uh, i tell people to practice on a on a deer uh you know whatever you whatever you shoot through a season just you know even if you throw it in the freezer uh and try it one day in the winter uh to try to learn something uh practice turning and so turning all turning is is all of that stuff that we've taken all the eyelid 
the nose, the lips, and the ears is they're all skin to skin and hair out, and uh, there's no way for salt to get in there. So if you can imagine that lip that you've got and the nostrils that you've got, without you turning them, uh, you've got all that cartilage and flesh, and you could pour five pounds of salt on it, and it will not penetrate all of that stuff before bacteria gets to those areas and you have slippage or rot and causes the issues. So turning is getting into the areas that you can put salt to. Um, so I'll start with the ears. Uh, the easiest way to think of an ear when you're turning it is you're going to take that ear and you're going to turn it completely inside out. It's going to be the same shape as, uh, as the ear beginning when it starts, but it's going to be hair to hair on the inside. So the inside of that ear is going to be facing the outside of that ear flipped around. So if you were to stick your finger in it, you'd have both of them facing each other and you're going to have all skin on the outside. And that comes from uh, turning, pulling down on that ear butt and, and running a line. As you uh, see, you'll, you'll see the back of that ear, you can start cutting along the line where the hide pulls away from that ear cartilage. And it's a matter of slowly taking your time and pushing up. Uh, I used my uh, my titanium spoon while I was uh, turning ears this trip. So using that spoon to turn and allow some pressure on my on my leg while I uh, continually made little tiny cuts and turned them inside out. Um, when you when you look at one, if you aren't sure what whether you've gone far enough, um, look at the other. Look at an ear that's right side in or proper and uh, compare it for size. You don't have to go right, right to the edge where, you know, you can leave a couple millimeters um, and salt will penetrate, but make sure that you turn them close enough that they look, they look like sheep ears turned the other way. Um, each ear canal is going to have a bunch of meat and flesh on it around that cartilage. And all the ear canal is, is cartilage. So if you take as much of that meat off of the cartilage as possible, You'll know the difference when you're running a knife along it, whether you're taking meat off or whether you're cutting into cartilage. If you're cutting into cartilage, just leave it and just peel all that red meat off of the ear. That's just the muscle that controls that ear uh, from turning and, and them listening and whatnot. So uh, different animals have different size ear butts for, for uh, the size of ear that they have and how they control them and whatnot. But take all that flesh off and leave that big, long ear canal right down to where I talked about that pinky hole. Just leave that whole canal there. It'll dry up nicely and uh, it gives the taxidermist a lot to work with. Um, so that's ears. Eyelids uh, can be very daunting and eyelids are one that uh, you don't have to get right to the edge, but essentially if you were to pull your eyelid out, it's the uh, part right, right where your lashes are uh, that you're trying to get to on an animal. Um, and you're trying to turn all that skin that you pulled off the eyeball, you're trying to turn that inside out where you can, you can get salt almost to the inside of where your eyelashes are, or where that animal's eyelashes are. So it's, it's a bit of a trickier feel, but you stick your finger on that eyelid from the outside and you slowly start pulling that eyelid away as, and folding it back as you run a, run a scalpel along that line. Not as, uh, important if you're a little, hesitant about getting as close um but the the closer you are the better there's some oils and whatnot in there that can affect it but i would uh, that'd be one area that i'd caution that if you don't if you don't turn properly 
you don't risk as much damage as some of the other areas, and you can do sometimes more damage if you're uh, if you're really kind of gung ho with a knife. So that's one that uh, takes a little bit of practice to really get is turning eyelids. Um, so just open them up as much as you can, and uh, that'll allow salt to get to uh, get to those oily uh, glands in there. Um, Lips are uh, very similar to an eyelid that you have all that flap from where it attached to uh, the gum line. And it'd be a big ring that'll go right around the lips. And it's a pretty identifiable color change of what, what gum or what lip is and what inside flesh is. And so what you want to do is grab onto that, uh, that lip flap and again, open it up. If you were to think of that, where a lip from the outside turns into the inside of a mouth so that uh you know kind of that point of where a lip is if you were to grab onto it on an animal uh that point is where you want to turn inside out so you want the inside of that mouth gum uh turned or lip turned all the way around to the hair side and it's almost going to lay flat when you're done um leave as much of that lip line on as possible it's very easy to cut off afterwards what a taxidermist needs but that that's what a taxidermist tucks into a uh into a mount to give that animal the the look of actually uh having having lip lines that uh that are tucked into a into a mouth um again it's just a matter of folding that thing using your finger is really important there where you're allowing uh your blade to run between or over top and you're using that finger to judge how much uh flesh you have in between um you know where the lip line is it's a it's a bit of a feel process where you can get close and if you poke through in one spot just back off a little bit and don't go quite as far if you cut through and you see hair um you probably missed the corner of the actual lip line and you're you're too far into the hairline um but again it's a process of just opening up that entire lip line so that way salt can get right to the to the uh tips of uh the lip uh, a, a good idea or reference is like essentially like the, the line where somebody would put lipstick on where they would start with lipstick is where you want that knife blade to come on from the inside to turn. So where skin, where, where skin meets that lip, actual lip line is where you want to get to or hair meets that actual lip line. Um, and then from there, it's, uh, it's nose. Uh, splitting the nose is essentially you're going to have one chunk that's going to have two nostrils in it. And what you want to do is turn those into two individual nostrils rather than one. So you'll see the the septum from the back. You're looking at it and it looks like two nostril holes looking through the back. You want to run a, light, a knife right through that septum straight down. Um, and you'll notice that it starts peeling apart. And that keeps each one of those nostrils separate as two separate tubes. Um, and opening them up where you're getting as much as close to that hairline as possible. Uh, turning with your fingers as well. It's a very, uh, it's a process that really involves feel. There's some really good videos out there about it um, on YouTube. And, you know, even taxidermy videos uh, have some pretty good how-tos uh, for the amount of money that we invest in, in sheep hunting. If you're hesitant and you can't find a really, really good resource online, uh, buy a $20, um, you know, how to mount a deer uh, taxidermy video and they all have really really good fleshing uh, or turning uh, tips as well uh, and you'll see exactly what the process looks like again I have a few pictures of, of some some things uh, I'm guilty of not taking as many as I should 
but those are the key things you want to turn is the ears, the lips, the eyes, and the nose. Cool. So you've got all of it turned. You're, you're good to go now. Uh, salting. So I guess there's a couple scenarios, you know, um, one thing, I guess, if you're going to be at your taxidermist in the next three hours, you really don't need to salt it. But sheep hunting, that's probably not going to happen. So yeah. I guess let's take your scenario. You and Darren are back there. You got your two 710 milliliter bottles of salt. Um, and let's say you're going to stay and kill a ram or kill a goat with Darren. So what do you do with your salt? How do you manage that? And what does that look like? Um, and in median temperatures, like you were on a September hunt, I know – if you're on an August hunt, that looks a little different because now you have more heat management issues or if there's lots of rain, but talk about salting now. Yeah, you bet. And uh, I'll hit back on fleshing a little bit. You touched on it, but again, that's just getting all the fat, all the flesh off. Um, that's tedious, but it, and it takes some time, uh, but just work through the entire cape from, from face down, you know, around the, around the, uh, Bottom jaw, uh, chin area holds a lot of flesh, so you can pull some flesh out of there. Around behind the eyes, um, you know, kind of the entire anywhere that there was muscle structure will have some meat attached to that flesh. And so, what you want to do is get or touch that cape. You want to get that flesh, that that muscle structure off of the uh, off of the cape, and you'll start seeing uh, it almost turning blue when you're getting close, where it's skin versus. Uh, skin versus flesh uh fat is horrible for salt to get through so make sure that you take all the salt off um and all the meat off and then yeah 710 milliliter bottle um i i like each person bringing one of their own uh so that way you have the ability to manage one cape with uh the ability to keep hunting for another animal if you need to or use that second one on uh on the one cape at one point regardless uh so if we wanted to keep hunting i would use that i and i did use that 710 milliliter bottle as soon as i was done and i rubbed it into every single spot uh really good uh clay or sorry uh, brian martin has one good video on uh online going through some uh salting and caping stuff where he shows you know rubbing cape salt in over top of the cape so you know utilizing if you're going to have anything spill off that cape to not have it spill off to, into the grass it's not going to do you any good so working above the cape working on the face and a little bit of salt at a time don't pour the whole 710 milliliters out uh, but start working on the lips and, and grind all that salt into the lips and then start working on the the eyes and the ears and and slowly get every little spot salt ground into every little nook and cranny take make sure there's no folds flatten everything out really good and then start by sprinkling it on the cape and slowly working it into the edges um, again 710 milliliters or even a liter is not going to go far so you have to use it really smart and make sure that it's uh, spread right out it was a nice clear sunny day so we just left that uh, cape kind of sitting out and getting some air and within like two hours or an hour it's got pools of blood and water on it where that salt is doing its job um in the case where we keep hunting we did we do left that for the entire day and then rolled it up in the evening put it in a cape bag and a you know either durlap sack or a or a game bag and you can hang it up in a tree let it drip or you can you know put it wherever you're going to be able to manage it keep it safe cool and it will salt will keep working like that and then you can uh, hunt for you know, a couple more days on it, letting it air out a couple times if you need, uh, you know, the following day and the day after, depending on what the weather's doing. 
I've also tarped one up where I've uh, laid it out flat and then put a tarp on top of it where I've let the salt do its work and then covered it with a tarp after uh, after I've rolled it up just so the rain isn't pouring in on that cape as well if, uh, if you're dealing with really bad rainy weather as well. Um, nice thing with having the second bottle is if you, aren't su- if you are successful, uh, you have a decision to make whether you're probably going to have to hike both animals out differently or separately anyways. So probably what that second bottle is going to be used for is either to get that first or that second cape to a state like this one is where you can then hike the other one out to go get uh, meat out and whatnot and resalt it at the truck or the lake or wherever your, your base is uh, while the other one has some salt on it. And if you aren't successful, you can use that second bottle uh, on the first animal, uh, just giving yourself enough time. So that's what we did about three or four in the afternoon. I took that second bottle. We knew we were going to hike out the next day. Uh, and we reapplied even more on there and let it uh, let it work overnight, essentially rolled up uh, as well. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, now, how long are you good? And, and what are some techniques? Somebody's, let's say they're in for the opener. Um, this year I was in for the opener. It was 30 degrees, three or four days. So let's say we kill a ram on day one and you want to hunt for another week, you've got your two seven ten mils. Uh, how long is that good for? How long could we hunt for before we start getting in trouble where we, we're risking spoilage, I guess? And I know it's not an exact science, but what could you, you get away uh, with? Yeah, you probably are better than what you were going to be with meat. So meat is going to turn into your, uh, into your measuring stick. Meat is probably what's going to cause you issues before the cape will. If you've, if you've fleshed properly and you've used that salt and really got it into everywhere, uh, meat is going to be your biggest, your bigger challenge than um, than cape, which is to say that you know doing that right, that that even that small amount of salt can can often keep uh, a cape really good shape if you're keeping it cool and keeping it out of uh, you know being balled up the entire time and getting it some air every once in a while. Uh, that that salt will continue to work. Now it's not going to work as well as two or three pounds would uh, or three or four pounds would, but your bigger challenge is likely going to be meat. I'm quite confident that if you if you did things properly, uh, you're going to run into meat issues before you run into cape issues. So you can hunt for for another week with with that amount. Again, looking at it and going, is this drying up by a week? Um, that cape is going to be dry um, with enough salt on it. So if you get to day three or four, uh, you may have to make a decision. Four or five, even you may have to make a decision and say like, is this uh, salt working anymore is this cape drying uh what's the weather doing is, is it really hot is that is that uh, air letting it dry as well uh or maybe use part of that next bottle but uh but if you flush properly i'm i'm pretty confident that that 710 or one liter uh can can allow you to hunt a lot longer than than the meat likely will anyways okay right on so uh i guess just for Anybody that's not been on a, a northern trip, you know, obviously take lots of salt back at the truck. Have uh, once you get your your cape back to the truck, have lots of salt there and be ready to to treat it again. I guess for the long drive back, especially you head down south and you start getting in those thirty degree temperatures in the lower mainland and stuff like that. Um, we've all seen that before, right? So, um, yeah. so tips for the trip home. Uh, trip home. Should people be airing that cape out? I guess what's the best route? Um, you know, on your your trip back i guess i loaded that salt right up uh, i can't remember how much i put but i had a small home depot bucket and i you know i just had a big scoop in there 
I loaded up flat while we organized the truck uh, and let it sit on there and then rolled it up and put it in a, like a feed bag uh, and it rode home the entire way rolled up uh, with that salt work. And again, I was really confident that it was ground into the right spots and really uh, working. Um, and for the most part, drives like that are really tough to keep that flat. You know, you use the salt, roll it up, make sure when you roll it that you put it skin to skin and allow that salt to work and uh, and you can drive from you know, the tat down to Cranbrook and, uh, you'll have no problems at all. And then from there you can unroll it when you get home and, and let it, uh, start drying up. Um, you can, that, that salt is going to, going to work for, for 30 hours of driving or a couple of days of driving. So you get home, is it essential to get that Cape straight over to you or, or can you sit on it for a week or how get home? Do you throw it in the freezer until you can get to the taxidermist? What's the best approach from there? If you've done it right, it, that salt that you can let that salt dry that thing right up to till it's as hard as cardboard. Essentially, um, if you have some hesitations about it, uh, you know you can get it to a taxidermist quicker possible. Uh, if there's any, you know, additional spots that weren't turned fully or weren't fleshed as well, uh, they have the ability to do some stuff. Um, and if you feel like you've made some bad mistakes. Um, you can put it in the freezer, uh, by then you've probably had three or four days, you know, of, of warmth and whatnot and bacteria, depending on the type of weather. But, uh, if you feel like you've made some mistakes that you can't fix, uh, you could put it in the freezer. You just got to remember that salt obviously is kind of doing the opposite in a freezer. Um, but it will, uh, it will s- slow down any of that bacteria anyways, in areas that salt maybe didn't get to, if you didn't turn something, uh, properly, uh, it, it will at least kind of protect it a little bit. And I've, I've had that for sure, um, where, where hunters have done that and just, it gives it that little extra bit of security. But if you're confident, uh, in what you've done, let that salt go to work and let it dry right up and, uh, makes it really easy to uh, get it to a taxidermist or give it to them. If your taxidermist is local, obviously, uh, go see him as soon as possible and, uh, and, and it'd be a lot easier, a lot better, better off. Very cool. Uh, what are we missing? What haven't we talked about yet that we should cover with regards to taxi stuff? I can't think I of anything. I know no. I uh, I paid attention to the last one and brought 710 milliliters of salt in a Gatorade bottle. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I remember that. That went into yeah. back nicely. And there's a couple a, of blades, sharpener, yeah. Yeah, there's a... A good feeling at the end of a hunt, if you're unsuccessful, dumping out 710 milliliters of salt into the grass and walking down with an empty bottle. Um, but it's kind of a even better feeling when you uh, dump it uh, on a sheep cape and don't have to worry about uh, dumping it out. I, you'll carry a lot more and dump it on the ground than you ever will uh, put it on a cape. But uh, it, it sure is a good feeling knowing that uh, you don't have to carry it carry it out. Um, I would have loved to have a scale to to measure what how much weight we pulled off that cape with fleshing and salting alone, uh, the liquid that came off it in that, you know, that short period of time. Um, I know I weighed all the quarters and the head and, and cape and whatnot when I got home separately, but uh, I'd, I'd be really curious to know how much I had a pretty good pile of flesh uh, sitting there and that salt then just starts pulling moisture out and, and really saves, saves a bunch of weight that you're carrying. Um, yeah. Buying good fine salt is uh Fine white salt. Don't don't buy thicker rock salt. Is uh, another tip. 
again, I go back to just like treating things like meat care. It's uh, if you're treating your meat properly and uh, and treating your cape in the same way, um, you'll probably have success and you won't have uh, some of the issues. Some guys, I think I addressed on the last one, some guys will say, oh, I've killed three or four rams and never used salt and, and been fine. Um, and it happens. Uh, I know a lot of guys that have killed sheep, haven't used salt, got it home, hadn't had any issues. And uh, it, it's just one of those things that I don't, uh, I don't really uh, like to have that extra variable. I've had capes that have been shot in late season uh, with really good care, still have issues um, when you get them back from tannery because of slip and bacteria and whatnot. So control as many variables as possible. Um, and as many guys might say, yeah, I don't like carrying the, the extra, you know, weight of salt. I'll leave it back at the truck. Uh, it's not that much in the end, uh, especially, you know, when you're, when you're successful and you realize the difference it makes, uh, in the end product. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So what I've done is I just purchased some, uh, some of that fine iodine salt for, from a feed store that I bought a 25 pound bag or something like that. It's lasted me for years and that's worked well. Um, that's fine. Hey, or you can just go to the grocery store and just buy iodine salt off the, it gets a bit expensive, but you can do that also off the shelf. Yeah. Right? yeah you can do it off the shelf as well. For sure. I obviously buy mine from a feed store as well, but, uh, the quantity that I use, you know, doing taxidermy, uh, I buy it that way. You know, if all you're worried about is having having a couple liters um, and then letting your taxidermist do the rest, okay, you know, that, that works as well. But again, even, you know, regardless on a trip, you're probably going to have some extra back at the camp, uh, whether that's base camp, whether that's the lake, or whether that's your truck. And um, so, yeah, it's it's a $7, $10 investment uh, in a uh, feed size bag of salt. And uh yeah, it goes a long ways. And obviously we sprinkled some on, uh, on backstraps as well. That's, uh, that's almost a rite of passage is you have to use uh, Cape salt for, uh, when you're cooking backstraps over, uh, over an open fire. Yeah, right on. That's awesome. Uh, okay. So somebody, are, are you taking any work right now? I know you're super busy and you, you know, you got your day job, you do your conservation work. Um, are you taking any capes or what's, what's your situation there? If somebody needs some work done? Yeah. Uh, obviously I'm, I'm part-time, uh, but, uh, I love working on sheep, goats, caribou, mountain critters. Um, you know, BC is a huge province, which, uh, I, I end up doing a lot of work, uh, for some local friends as well as uh, a lot of Alberta clients, given my location in Cranbrook, I'm pretty close to the Alberta border, used to live in Alberta, um, but have, have customers all over the province. Um, Prince George and Richmond and all over. So it's, uh, I'm always happy to take work. Um, and right now, yeah, I think I've got a few sheep that I've taken in this year, which is, uh, shaping up pretty well. And, uh, yeah, getting, get, get in touch with me. If, uh, I'm always happy to, to chat taxidermy. Uh, there's some really good guys in, in, uh, BC that, uh, even if I don't, uh, don't take the the job. I'm glad to pass along uh, who I who I'd use in different areas of the province. There's some really really good guys out there, and uh, it's definitely a, a good community of uh, of guys in in BC. Yeah, right on. So if somebody wants to bring some work to you, how do they get in touch with you, Trev? 
Uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Rockmaster Taxidermy, or you can just look me up as Trevor Brothers as well. Um, yeah, easy enough to find me in kind of either spot uh, or touch base. Uh, you know, with you, obviously, you can can get my cell phone number. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty easy enough to, to get a hold of uh, on Facebook or Instagram uh, at Rockmaster Taxidermy or uh, or Trevor Brothers. Every uh, Every sheep that I do, uh, I make sure that uh, if the person is not a Wild Sheep Society BC member, I buy them a membership. So that's my one uh, one way I try to give back to the society uh, through every sheep mount. And uh, I have, usually do a couple other promotions with the society and whatnot to uh, to really promote membership overall uh, when, I'm, when I'm taking it. Yeah, right on. And we can't thank you enough for everything you do for the society. Um, not just that, but uh, every year you're donating. Uh, we have the Barney's Ultimate Sheep Camp, which you donate that uh, mount for every year, uh, among all the other stuff you do on top of it. So can't thank you enough for everything, Trev. And uh, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, phase two here. It sounds like the audio quality is pretty decent. Uh, we'll have to see how it listens, but uh, appreciate you taking the time. And uh, as always, you know, I've, we've been through this twice now and I learned some new tricks again today. So uh could never get too old. Just as a side, is there any way that you could do a webinar type thing where you could actually, you know, do a caping seminar online or is that pretty much impossible? Is there, could you, Yeah, and I know probably not uh, for sheep, but. Yeah, sometimes for sheep, it's an issue um, because of the ability to get a ram, I, I very rarely will get a ram delivered uh, with the with it with the cape on the face, um, but I've got a I've got a mule deer uh, draw in Alberta this year. Um, if I remember properly, I should uh, we should talk about uh, doing something uh, with that, or if I have something dropped off in the next uh, month or two. Uh, that I have a lot of freezer room right now. Maybe we can uh, tee something up with how how we'd. Uh, film it properly to to kind of walk through some of the steps uh so that way it's, it's there so yeah let's chat some more about that i've always thought the same thing i again i try to take some pictures but uh the more the more stuff that's out there uh the better so so i'll make sure that i, I keep it in the back of my mind my mind it might not be a might not be a ram but uh a lot of the basics will be there yeah, right on. And for our listeners, if that's something you might be interested in, just shoot us an email at communications at wildsheepsociety.com and just let us know if that's something you'd tune into or, um, you know, just like to get some feedback on that. If there's a lot of demand for it, then we can maybe bug you a bit more on it and see if we can put something together and do some sort of webinar based thing or something like that. Not sure what it looks like, but it'd be pretty cool, I think. So. Yeah, and I know a society at uh, convention and whatnot, uh, it's happened a, a few times in the past, um, you know, where they've done one live. Uh, and as long as I uh, did some thinking and planning on it, I uh, might be able to do something like that as well, uh, you know, when the world gets back to normal and we're, uh, we're meeting up like people again. Um, if we could do something live, you know, I'd look at that too. Uh where we could have, you know, a workshop or something uh, with people there and, and a little bit more hands-on uh, approach to seeing seeing some of the stuff up close. So it's just one of those things that I, I have to think about and uh, plan for, but we're worth chatting about if it's of interest to people. Cool, man. Awesome. Uh, well, that's yeah. all I have for you. I can't uh, thank you enough for taking the time today. And um, yeah, just uh, great, 
great Ram this year. Super stoked for you, buddy. When I got that uh, in reach off the freaking mountain, I just was losing. I was so stoked for you. So really pumped, man, and appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Been uh, been a lot of fun, and uh, hope that part two uh, worked out well.